Welcome to RiskWise, a show about money for Muslims, where you'll learn how to make smarter financial decisions without selling your soul. For the full experience, join us at no cost at riskwise.com. Assalamu alaikum, Risk Nation. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Ahmed Munawar, and today we have a very special treat for you. Saeed and I interviewed a brother by the name of Rehan Huda. Rehan is a well-known community activist. He's an investment banker and really one of the key driving forces behind the Islamic finance industry in North America. Now, this interview was initially really supposed to be about a book. Rehan had recommended that Saeed and I both read a book called Debt, A 5,000-Year History. The problem was the book is over 500 pages long. So I said, look, Rehan, I'd rather you just come over and let's just talk about it. And while we're at it, let's record the conversation for the show. And lucky for me, he agreed. So we talk a lot about this book. It's, it's a fascinating book written by a professor from the London School of Economics who essentially traced the history of debt over 5,000 years. And what he found was that, among other things, that debt actually predates money. So before we had money and currency and coin and the monetary system as we know it, we had debt and credit, which is a, a contribution to the field of economics that, that, that is unique to him. That's a new finding. And what we also find is that debt has had a very destructive effect on almost every society that it touches, that popular and extreme indebtedness has led to violence and rebellion and revolt and really the destruction of entire societies. And that's not just a one-off thing, that has happened repeatedly throughout its 5,000-year history. So the book is quite fascinating and we get into a lot of what the author presents uh, as its proofs. Um, for that 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 history of debt. And we also get into the religious side of things. The author actually dedicates an entire chapter to discussing how various religions have dealt with the problem of debt. And the chapter on Islam is fascinating. I know Saeed and I were both really blown away by some of the stuff that Rehan was was mentioning from the book. And what we found is that a lot of what we know about modern economic theory is actually inspired by and in some cases taken directly from the likes of Imam al-Ghazali and other prominent Muslim scholars and philosophers. Now, because Rehan is, is so actively involved in the Islamic finance industry, I did want to have a brief conversation with him at the end about, you know, where the industry is at, its challenges, um, what's coming up, uh, what we have to look forward to as consumers. Uh, and where all this is going. So that's you'll if you're interested in the Islamic finance industry, even as a consumer, even as somebody that wants Sharia compliant financial products, more of them, uh, I think you're going to find that conversation quite interesting. Now, this is going to sound very different from the other episodes you're used to because it, it's going to sound like a bunch of guys just sitting around drinking coffee um, and having a conversation. And that's because that's exactly what it was. We were actually sitting at my kitchen table drinking coffee and eating cookies and just kind of chatting. So it's going to sound very casual uh, it's going to sound very different. And it's a longer conversation that I haven't edited or cut anything out of because I think most of what we discuss is very valuable. And, and if you stick with us through to the end, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. Now, there was a doorbell that rang near the end of our conversation because, like I said, we were sitting in my kitchen and somebody came to the house. Um, so I do apologize for that, but I think maybe it adds to the whole natural feel of the show. So do sit back and enjoy the show, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it, inshallah. All right, let's get started. Assalamu alaikum, Rehan. Thank you for joining me in my kitchen. Yes. Yeah. You're here too? I am. Great to be here. Fantastic coffee, by the way. Good, good. Uh, Compliments are a good way to start. Alhamdulillah. Great thing about doing recordings at Ahmed's house is fantastic the coffee. coffee. Absolutely. The coffee. And we've got a nice little heat wave here in Toronto in November. So iced coffee for today. That's yes. right. That's right. Alhamdulillah. So Rehan, thank you so much. Um, I want to just start off with a brief introduction of you. Um, we're really honored. This is actually your first guest. Yes, it is. 
Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, yeah, wow. you're our first interview. The first interview on Riskwise. Wow. I, I hope that's a good thing. Yeah, this <laughs> is a good, that's a good Well, let's see how it goes. <laughs> that's right. uh, the only one in the crazy enough to accept it? <laughs> <laughs> no, and Charlotte's will be the first of many interviews. Um, but, you know, when we first conceptualized the idea of Riskwise and, and we started talking about what we wanted to cover and so on, you know, you were one of the first names that came up as, you know, we, we got to get Rehan on the show. Mm -hmm. um, Rehan and I go back you know, a few years now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been following a lot of the work that you've been doing, the great work you've been doing. So you were kind of a natural fit to bring on to the show. And I think one of the things that we realized in getting into this, when we made our list of interviewees is there's a lot of good talent in the community. Yeah. We've got a lot of really smart and bright people on the topic of money and finance that I'm just now starting to appreciate. And you're certainly one of them. But let me tell everyone um, what, what you're about and what your background is. First, so Rehan Hoda is an investment banker, um, founder of Amana Capital here in Canada. Um, he's got a, a long history at the Department of Finance, worked under four finance ministers here in Canada, um, is, is an economist, um, is a, a, a financial expert, an investment banker. Um, he actually teaches, co-teaches, the very first Islamic finance MBA course that's been offered in North America over at the Rotman School of Management at University of Toronto. And I'm told it's one of the most popular courses in the school. Is that true? I mean, it's, it's a popular course, That's the rumor. but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's getting more popular as uh, we're getting into our fifth year. And it's not just Muslims, from what I understand. No, no. Majority of the students are, are not Muslims. Uh, they're just looking wow. for, you know, interesting alternative uh, ways to look at finance. Amazing. Amazing. So thank you again for joining us. Very excited to have you here. And the topic I wanted to discuss with you, Rehan, is, is the topic of debt. You know, as Muslims, we we know a lot about the prohibition of riba, hopefully, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we know generally the kind of the, the warnings against indebtedness from the sunnah and the sharia, right? But what we don't know and we don't talk about quite often is the, the sociological implications and the anthropological implications of debt and the impact it has on individuals and on societies. So when we first started talking, you said, oh, you got to read this book. It's called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. <laughs> and I said... 5,000 years, how long is the book? <laughs> and 500 look, plus pages. And I'm looking yes. at it now, and uh, you know that's that, that could be a doorstopper right there. 500 pages. So needless to say, I didn't read it. <laughs> did, did you read it, Sage? I'm getting through it, yeah. I scanned the Wikipedia page. That's yeah. what I did. Okay. So I was hoping you could just come on and, you know. You just read the, read the book. Read, how much time do we have? <laughs> I can speed read 500 pages. Yeah, let's do it. So tell us the story. What's this all about? It's an interesting book. You know, I just... Uh, had picked it up, you know, at, at, at a bookstore once, and, um, and I'd heard about uh, this author, and I'd heard about the book, and, and, uh, and I thought, you know, let, let me have a look at it. And it was interesting. I mean, the author is uh, David Graeber. I mean, he teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics. Mm. Um, he is actually one of the founders of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and so oh, he's okay. one of the intellectual gurus behind there. Mm. Uh, he, he does a lot of protests and organizes a, a lot of anti-establishment you know, type movements, yeah. um, and um, and I think he was just at you know at some party, and he was talking about the indebtedness of one one, one country, uh, where he was doing some some studies, and how they were in debt to you know one of their imperial powers <laughs> that yeah. had occupied them before, and and this lady he was talking to, she said, well, you know, shouldn't they pay their debts back, right? You know, <laughs> this mm. country, and so, and he was thinking, well, hey, I mean. These imperial powers came, they occupied their country, stole all their resources, and also wanted debt payments from mm -hmm. them, you know, even after they left. Yeah. And so he thought that was, you know, not quite uh, right. And um, he's, it, it bothered him a lot, you know. And then he started thinking about debt, and he started reading up on it, and he said, there's, there's no book that's on the history of debt. I mean, there's books on the history of money, on the history of credit, history of banking, etc., but no one looked at debt, you know, as a as a concept mm -hmm. until uh, until he did. Then he wrote this book, so it was right. quite an interesting five hundred plus uh, page read. So, <laughs> so it's yeah. interesting because I think one of the things he says here I've never heard before, and I think it's groundbreaking in the field is the idea that debt predates money. Yes, yes. So how is that? Because he said the concept of debt was there before money and markets, how societies used to function before is mm. is let's say I had a cow and you had some goats and say so you, you had some some wheat or flour and stuff. Okay. And so generally how it worked in the sort of 
pre-money societies is, you know, you you need my cow sometimes, you know, you need to borrow a cow or a goat or maybe I need some wheat. And we would, we would have these systems where we would borrow things, but there was an understanding at the end of the day, it all even out. Yeah, there's yeah. some kind of IOU system exactly. sort of thing. Exactly. In fact, it's been documented in some English villages that uh, they would come every six months or a year together and they said, okay, you owed this uh, to me. And so, you know, this to that person, etc. At the end of the day, you know, they would wipe out everyone's debts and, and maybe Saito ends up owing three cows to Ahmed and we'll call it a day, yeah, right? And the so, whole village is cleared. The whole village is cleared, right? Yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's, so that's how things would, would work, right? right. And so that's, you know, so, so always, you know, you, you had in human society this cooperation, you know, and, and you needed it to, to survive. It wasn't this sort of survival of the fittest, right? This competition, which is relatively a new concept, mm. you know, when you look at human societies. Yeah, like we, nobody was doing everything that their family needed to survive, you know, making their bricks, making their roof, making their clothes, making mm. their food. They were doing everything. Yeah. Some people did specialize into a few things, like let's say cows, another, buddy, another person into goats, another person into wheat, you know, they weren't doing, every, every family household wasn't doing everything, so there had to be some kind of trade and some kind of ability to transact. Exactly. And, even before money. and it would practically be impossible to clear every transaction on the spot, so right. from what I'm understanding, debt arose as a necessity, right? Not like That's we understand right. it today. That's right. At that time, debt was required to be able to transact. If exactly. you didn't have debt, you wouldn't be able to transact. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, if you've seen, you were know, in Russia when, when you had the collapse of the ruble, you know, relatively recently, and mm -hmm. then you had like no effective monetary system. I mean, people just ended up going to this sort of, you know, IOU system and, you know, just to just help each other out. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't have money, you know, societies could, could function. Right. And so his argument was money came on later with governments and markets mm. and, uh, and often the military, you know, so... And, and basically, coinage would replace these IOUs, right. you know, because if you had a, a soldier, I mean, who would just buy your stuff on credit, well, I mean, there's a power difference, a difference there. And you are you going to collect those debts? Yeah, exactly. Are you going to collect it off the guy, you know, who's right. loaded with, you know, uh, spear and spears, shield? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, right? And right. so, so of course, if you had government minted coinage, you know, and you had did clear that way, I mean, th th then money arose, etc. And that, so, so it's, so that, that concept of, of, of debt, he's analyzing and studying and, and showing, you know, how the history, through human history, mm -hmm. how debt has been used to oppress people, you know, uh, by all sorts of authorities, mm -hmm. governments, etc. And, uh, I mean, he was given an example of, of, of Madagascar, for example, you know, which was colonized and it's, Basic rulers after they left would leave it in debt, you know, mm. and they'd have to pay off people that colonized them and took them. Right. And uh, Haiti as well, another example where you had a revolution from the people there, uh, but they were forced to to pay back, you know, mm. the cost of building the roads, bridges, everything. You the roads know? and bridges that was used to strip their resources. Exactly. <laughs> and should put on ships and move away, you yeah. now have to pay for those roads and bridges yeah. that you didn't actually ask for. Exactly. And that. So, so, so these type of injustices that you see, you know, um, and, and of course the, the world community, because it was composed of imperial powers, you know, didn't do anything, you know, right. because it was just the way things are. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's this type of injustice that he sees all over the place. So, at the macro level, we see it, you know, with many of the third world countries that were indebted. Um, you see it at even smaller levels. I mean, he was talking about this um, French anthropologist, his name is Jean-Claude Gallet, and so he's in the Himalayas, and uh, and he's looking at these low-ranking caste, you know, individuals, and, and how they're referred to as the vanquished ones because several centuries ago, some of their ancestors couldn't pay debts, mm -hmm. and suddenly... They're um, under the power of, you know, their landlords and who have, who are, of course, of the higher caste and they're landless, they're penniless, uh, and, and they need loans just to, just to eat, you know, and, and so, so, so they're getting loans just to eat. And meanwhile, they're cleaning their landlords' washrooms, they're taking mm. care of their cattle, etc. And when the time comes for their daughters to get married, oh, I mean, it's brutal you know, they actually give their daughter to the landlord for a few months and then he as gives... As a concubine in their right, house you know, to pay for the wedding. To pay for the wedding because you're in debt all the time. And then after that, 
he gives her to you know his his mining you know staff for a year or two and then after that she's returning to go and live with her husband the debt's paid off right you know yeah and we're not talking about hundreds of years we're talking you know in the 1970s the study was done right you know and in india and that so so it may seem shocking and outrageous uh, but this anthropologist, he didn't report that there was any widespread feeling of injustice. I mean, people thought that's just the that. system, you know, that, that's, that's just the how way, it works. That's how it works. They're mm. told that you're indebted to your ancestors, and this is the way you live, and this is your lot in life. We're the higher caste, you know, the lower caste, etc. I'm, kind of, I'm curious, because at one level, when we look at the nature of the, the origins of debt, rather, right, it arose as a necessity to transact, right? It was required. And, and, and then we see, on the other hand, the kind of the very extreme implications and the dangers of, you know, indebtedness at a, at a large scale. When does it become dangerous? Does he talk about that at all? Uh, it, it's interesting. It, it, in fact, it's, it's almost always dangerous. And if you look at debt, um, if, if it is not uh, sort of curtailed by moral responsibility, a feeling of community, etc. Mm. I mean, it is dangerous. I mean, even here, and if you look, and he, he followed many revolutions, you know, over the, the 5,000 years, almost all of them had to do with debt. Almost all of the revolutions across the world. And basically what happens when the peasants revolt? Mm. The debts are cleared, so they're out of yeah. debt. And then suddenly there's land reformation, you know. Yeah. And a redistribution of wealth. Mm. It's worth the risk. <laughs> happens all the time. Because you don't have anything, you're yeah. in debt. You have nowhere to go. Yeah. You know? Nothing to lose, really. Exactly. Why not revolt? Exactly. And, and here, although this anthropologist uh, noticed nothing was wrong, but I'm sure that the you know that those in the lower caste weren't going to say anything. Mm. But I'm telling you, if there is ever a revolution there, and some of these Marxist rebels in India go there and, and take over, I mean, uh, you know, things will be upside down very shortly once, once they're in power. So that, that sounds like it has something to do with wealth and income inequality at some point when there's unequal, there's such a wide gap between the rich and the poor when there's so much wealth inequality, which is becoming a hot topic today, income inequality, wealth inequality. It sounds like eventually then there's a revolt. Absolutely. That if they have such a high level of inequality where some small group of people have literally everything mm -hmm. and everybody else has practically nothing, then major major revolution tends to happen exactly and if you look at the time of the prophet of some sure. you know during that time and why was riba prohibited mm -hmm. you know and and why you know in in, in a sermon or in fair sermons he he canceled the debts of mm -hmm. is back in those days i mean i would give you a loan let's say give you a thousand dinars and if you didn't pay me so it was interest-free loan mm -hmm. so but if you didn't pay me on time, okay, I'll extend it, but it's doubled. Right. Okay, you can pay me another year later. Then, then it's multiplied, etc., etc. And then what happens? You're indebted to me. Mm. Yeah, you may become my slave. Right. right. So yeah, that you know, it, it was a mechanism to enter into slavery. Exactly. And could in that time could people sell them their, their kids and their your, their family members into slavery? That, that's what happened. That's wow. what happened. That's happened in cultures right across the world. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's so. So that's why, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it was such a powerful tool that the wealthy had used to oppress the weak. Mm. And there was economic injustice during that time. You know, during the time of, 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 of the Quraysh, you know, I mean, you had powerful, wealthy merchants uh, who would exploit, you know, the weak, who wouldn't pay. You know, the whole surah is titled about those, you know, who, right. who, who don't, you know. Uh, you know, balance, do balance in their economic, you know, transactions. You right. know, Prophet Shoaib was, was sent, you know, to a people who would do economic injustice. Mm. You know, and, and so so it's it's been there. And if you look at other religious traditions, Isa Islam, in the Bible is cursing the money changers at the temples, mm -hmm. you know, uh, who are engaged in usury, etc. So I mean, if you look at history, I don't think anyone has been so maligned as the money Lender, right? right. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's probably the worst <laughs> profession you know ever there ever was, right? After investment uh, bankers, anyways, uh, right? Oh, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, how many times I've had conversations, you know, and I've talked to people, and this, and, and they say, "What do you do?" Uh, I'm an investment banker. I hate investment bankers. <laughs> I've never had that problem when I was an economist at the government. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know 
It's it's unbelievable. I, I think us and lawyers get the same yeah. sort of treatment at times. Yeah, well, you work yeah. together. That's why. That's right. right. You're, you're accomplices. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. But I'm telling you, money changers. Uh, I mean, um, if you look at it historically, mm. not only our tradition, the Islamic tradition, Muslim traditions, but if you're looking at some of the Catholic writings in the early 1100s and 1200s, you know, where they're writing many stories of what happens to uh, you know, to moneylenders, and, and they were trying to go after all of those who charge usury, you know, and, and of course, their opinions had, had changed over time, what's usury and, you know, what's not, etc., uh, but, but but they had condemned them, you know, mm. and that, and so so there was other religious traditions besides ours. If you look at traditional Jewish law, mm-hmm. I mean, if you lent money on interest, I mean, you were not allowed to be a witness, etc., I mean, you were considered very low in society, you mm-hmm. know, that. so... If you look at what the Europeans had done, is that they didn't want to be moneylenders themselves. In fact, they had brought in many Jewish sort of middlemen to do the money lending for them, although they were behind them. And and so if anything went wrong, they would we would blame the, the Jews. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. So, Vilify them as, being, as if they were the culprits, but they were brought in as a third party, exactly. subcontractor. Exactly. Right. Let them, you know, get the brunt of that, and and they weren't allowed. Professions except money lending, they were restricted in professions that they were able to practice, mm-hmm. oh, wow. know, and that. So, so you know, it's 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 not a very good profession. In fact, if you look here in Canada, I mean, the banks are probably the most hated, mm. you know, corporations there are you know, in right. Canada. You know, yeah. I remember when we were looking at our bank project, and uh, we were talking to our, our, our research associates who've done all sorts of market studies with the major banks, and they said everyone hates them. Majority of people hate the banks. Very yeah. negative opinions. Exactly. About exactly. So what I hear from this is that throughout history, in different parts of the world, even within different religions, mm. there's been a moral quandary about debt, mm. about lending money. Um, it's not. It's not. Has, it has not always been so accepted as it is today to be in debt or to lend money to collect interest. You know, throughout history, through different parts of the world, it's actually been quite vilified. It's been quite. Uh, looked down upon through different religions, through different cultures, and there's even an example in the book of uh, Korean stories, correct? Uh, Buddhism and the 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 the, the story of the, the lady who collected debts very uh, sternly, and she, you know, died, but then was reincarnated as half beast. And uh, oh yeah, exactly. It's funny. There there's traditions like that in the Hindu traditions right. that you know if they were unfair money lenders that they were punished in the next life. Right. There was traditions in the Catholic tradition where they had. Uh, the, the the priest um, who suggested this money lender died. They weren't sure if he was a good guy or a bad guy. They said, "Well, time to a donkey and let's see where this donkey takes him." Yes, they, yes. they threw him in this. The donkey know, goes the, to uh, uh, what is it? Gallows. Yeah, the gallows. And then box him off. <laughs> exactly. Throws the manure. Exactly there and here. The the, the, the the Buddhist tradition is this this lady who was was a money lender and, and sort of you know, ripped off people all the time and oppressed them and her husband was a governor and so she could do whatever she wanted to. Yeah, she had the army behind him. Exactly. Behind her, yeah. And so she dies and she's reincarnated as this beast and suddenly the family feels ashamed and starts forgiving all the debts yes. so, so they can... <laughs> Try to make you know, Exactly. So, so, so you have these type of stories in almost every culture. It's interesting. Yeah. Right across the 5,000 years wow. that he's analyzed it, you, 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 you see it there. And so, so there's this moral sort of... Right issue i mean you know you know people need money and have to be in debt at times you know things happen but then again those guys giving it are also vilified yeah you know and so, so it's uh, not just us it's yeah, exactly yeah. yeah you know and so who's 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 to blame you right. know if things go wrong right mm. you know so i'm curious about a couple of things yeah. first of all you know to the average person today right you know i've got a little bit of household debt I've got a line of credit. I've got a what? Ignore the Sharia issues for a minute, right? Yeah. Got a little bit of debt. Eh, no one's taking my family away. Yeah. Now I'm not going to be a slave, right. right? I don't have to give up my children. What's the big deal? Yeah, I, I think you know there's a manageable amount of debt, and and frankly, societies and even Islamic societies uh, work a lot around credit. I mean, the system was credit based system. Mm. I mean, for merchants to do business, you needed credit. Mm. And so you had structures in Islamic law, law like Murabaha, Jara, Musharaka, etc. And right. there's ways you can get credit. Right. That was allowed and facilities were allowed for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sorry, can we back up one uh, quick second? What's the difference between debt and credit? So um, a debt could be, for example, I've lent you money and you owe me that money back. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, 
I mean, that's the type of relationships we're talking about. We're lending money to somebody for whatever purpose. Exactly. We're in Islamic law. I lend you a thousand dollars. Or what circumstances? You, 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 but if it's a loan to you, I cannot charge a penny of interest mm -hmm. getting it back. Mm -hmm. yeah. However, if you want to buy this computer here uh, and I sell it to you, you owe me $1,200 over one year versus yeah. 1000 today. I mean, that's a different type of transaction. Oh, uh, okay. You know, it's, it's a sale. So debt is lending money. Credit is you get something today and you pay for it over time, but you didn't necessarily lend the money. Yeah, it's, it's okay. a true sale transaction right. we're talking about. And when I teach my our class in Islamic finance, is well, what's the difference? Yeah. You know, what's the difference if I buy a house, uh, the conventional way versus the Islamic way? Mm -hmm. Well, fundamentally... If you buy this house and you pay it off over 20 years, fixed rate, etc., or you have a closed rate mortgage, it's the same. You know, it's dollar for dollar. Dollar for dollar, it's the same thing. It's a different structure here. However, what's different is, let's say I just open up a credit line for you. You're allowed to borrow 500000 buy whatever you want. Right. And I just want the interest payments. Right. And so you don't have any incentive to pay off the debt. Right. Those type of structures are not acceptable. It's funny, I was speaking to a CEO few years ago in a credit union, and he said, I, I, he goes, I love that structure. And I said, you love that structure? Why? And he goes, because, you know, Rand, what people do is they just pay the interest payments. They never pay off the principal, yeah. and I maximize my profit. And I yeah. said, yeah, you're a course. credit union. You're supposed to be helping guys out of debt, <laughs> keep it in debt. Of course, it maximizes your profit. Right. People given credit will spend. And in fact, if you look at all of the economic crises that's happened in so many of the countries where the Asian crisis, et cetera, it's usually overextension of credit mm -hmm. you know, to economies. People are spending away. So what happened to Greece? Yeah. And I was just at a, at a conference in, in Vancouver. It was um, uh, management, uh, all the, the, the management professors uh, uh, across the world. And I was speaking to a professor from, uh, from Greece who was actually doing, did her PhD on Islamic leadership you know, in management. And, so, and then we just ended up talking about the, the debt crisis in, in Greece. And, and she was saying, listen, we were just given so much credit, you know, at that time. We never had. We were buying Mercedes and, you know, all these German goods, and finally it, it, all, it all collapsed. The, yeah. the credit was easy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard a very similar story. Yeah, that, that it, it seemed, like, too good to be true, but it lasted for so long that it got normal. Exactly. But it was too good to be true. It was. I mean, look at the crisis we had here, 2008. 2007, 2008 subprime. Everybody got a house. Yeah. You got a house like Oprah. <laughs> you got a house. You got a house. You got a house. Right. Yeah. And that's, so, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the, the, the poor guy in the U.S. who never could dream of affording a house. Right. Now gets a house. Yeah. You know, he's paying rent this much, but now he's paying less, he gets a house. Yeah. And you're giving him furniture as well. I mean. Signing bonus. Yeah. So, you know, how could you refuse? Exactly. You know, you can't blame that person as a Wall Street Journal some other papers, you know, blamed, you know, them, you know, for causing the crisis, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, meanwhile, you know, uh, how, you know, how could you refuse if you're in that situation? Mm -hmm. You move to a better neighborhood, you know, you get a nice house, you get money, extra money even sometimes, and so, yeah. and, but, you know, sometimes these things happen, you know, and uh, I think there's a systematic problem, and I think this is what this book is getting to, there's a systematic problem on how we view debt, how things are structured. And the whole sort of economic system based on debt. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, th this being the man who founded the Occupy Wall Street movement, the one who coined the term. No, not founded it, but he led some intellectual credence to yeah, it. Or popularized it, maybe? Can we say that? Yes. Yeah, it certainly was one of the intellectual figureheads behind it. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm curious, what's his solution to all this? It's incredible uh, when he writes about the different religious traditions. And then there's a chapter here in the Middle Ages. He talks about Islam. And, uh, oh no! So, Is it good or bad? Uh, well, th this would shock you, right? This would shock you, and it shocked me when I read it, right? And uh, and I, I recommended this book to uh, to a number of other readers, Muslim readers, and, th and they were amazed. And and he basically said the Muslims figured it out. Really? And he said in the Middle Ages. Yeah, he said it was, was the first free market economy. So we're talking what 1200, 12, uh, 1400? Yeah, it'd be right through the Muslim Empire. Okay. When it started, right through. I mean, sort of the Islamic system. Of extension of credit, extension of credit, and, and the structures of the Protestant Islam had approved, and, and then developed over time. Okay, uh, and it's interesting. He's talking about how Adam Smith had copied some of his ideas directly from Ghazali, mm. the two great Muslim thinkers, 
and how uh, he uh, had, had basically used their examples verbatim. <laughs> but there was a difference. And he said, in the Islamic system, you don't have interest. And so basically, the creditors, the merchants, etc., who were vilified in other traditions weren't so. And he goes, in fact, if you look at the Islamic right. tradition, it's one of the few traditions where the merchant is actually, you know, considered, you know, a very respectable person in society. If you, right, if, yeah. you, if you look at business people in other traditions, you know, guys who had money, who had credit, etc., they were vilified right across. Right. You know, and if you look at Christian traditions, I mean, they do not trust the church, not trust merchants, not trust the wealthy, etc. Merchants, people who engaged in trade in the market, trade and business, etc., and, and who had capacity to give up credit. Right. Whereas ours are promised paradise, if they're honest. Exactly. Right. And ours, the Prophet is a merchant. Yeah. You know, our Prophet was a merchant. And so we, we weren't, you know, vilified at, at all. In fact, yeah, trade was, was encouraged, but within means, you know, within these limits, you know, and, and that. So, so, so it was different thinking, you know, than, than other traditions. Mm. And, and with the prohibition of riba, you know, so you couldn't enslave people. Right, you know, not with that means anymore. <laughs> so. Right, and that that I think was an important uh, point to note. The prohibition of riba eliminated one of the mechanisms by which people entered into slavery and became slaves. Exactly. So we get rid of that altogether. Now we start to put restrictions on extension of credit, uh, what you can do to collect on that credit, what you do in default. I mean, you can't just take somebody by the neck and say, you know, exactly. put a chain on them anymore. So no, and, put some... and it's very interesting. Going back to bankruptcy, that's a very interesting point. Um, you know, the U.S. was among the last countries in the world to have bankruptcy laws. Yeah, I thought that was interesting in the book. What, yeah, what yeah, happened before? Was, I mean, before, I mean, they, they would just, you know, you know, I, either you would be incarcerated, I mean, you would oh, be yeah. tortured publicly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those brutal things would happen. You, you had those debtor prisons in Europe, you know, right. the 1700s or outroar is because those rich guys that were in, in prisons, you know, would have a lavish lifestyle whereas the poor guys were just suffering right? <laughs> so this came out oh, yeah. to the press right and there's almost this revolution that was going to happen and then they changed they had bankruptcy laws there so bankruptcy just uh, for anybody who doesn't know what that is that's if somebody cannot pay off their debt what happens yeah so if someone cannot pay off their debt and you what you call it, chapter 11 this is a common chapter in, in, in the u.s you're given some time to restructure uh there's an order of your creditors so the guys that you know gave you money maybe they will take a fraction you know they will liquidate all your assets sell everything that you own sell everything that you own and they will redistribute it based on the priority mm -hmm. it's an interesting story um there was this u.s company that was going to saudi arabia and wanted to do a transaction and and the ceo wanted to know what will happen if that saudi companies goes bankrupt <laughs> will i get my money etc and so he, he hired this lawyer who happened to be Islamic scholar as well. And he was the brother of, uh, he was Mudathir Siddiqui. And so his, his brother Muzambal Siddiqui was a mm. past president of Islam, North oh, American okay. scholar. Okay. And that, and so this brother was, a, I think, a Harvard-trained lawyer, knew Islamic law. And so he did some research. And there, there wasn't any real chapter 11 in, in Saudi law. law, Saudi law at that time. But... Saudi law says if there's nothing in our laws, uh, you know, then go to Ibn Qudamah's, you know, fiqh manual. <laughs> That's our law. Mm. And so what he did is he went to Ibn Qudamah's fiqh manual, got the chapter on bankruptcy on Fulus, and he, and he wrote it down, translated it in English, and gave it to the U.S. CEO. The U.S. CEO looked at it, and he goes, oh, okay. Yeah, it looks like the Saudis and this Ibn Qudamah guy looks like they copy chapter 11. <laughs> so that was his... <laughs> they conclusion. copy chapter 11. Exactly. <laughs> So so he, uh, so the CEO was uh, told to his shock that this was written 700 years ago. Yeah. So chapter 11 has been around for well, uh, exactly <laughs> exactly exactly. It, you know, it, it gives you an idea of the, the humanity of Sharia, right? And Islamic law, right? You know, and, and and basically, you know, these bankruptcy sort of traditions we have now that are humane, you know, giving. Mm. You know, balance between the creditor and protection, you know, to debtor, etc. I mean, these things, you know, took a long time. Yeah. In Western traditions. In Western traditions, yeah. whereas we had it. I mean, the Islamic law, you know, had it in that. So, so the, 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 because, you know, you know, this, you know, as, as many religious traditions, you know, compassion, mercy, you know, uh, you know, especially for the poor, you know, who are, who are indebted. Right. Uh, but, but, but Shria really codified it. 
and created a full system mm. you know that can allow the thriving of a free market and at the same time protect those you know who may fall in the cracks so did he outline in the book any uh, tenets that adam smith uh, took from Ghazali, from the islamic traditions that he thought yeah these are the things um you know whatever number that he, he thought of or, or found these are the things that were right these are the things that actually made a very fair an equitable and functioning credit system um, from the Islamic tradition. Yeah, well, what he, he took was were, were examples, right? Okay. Uh, for example, the d division of labor. And so in Ghazali's example, I mean, there's there's a needle factory. And in Smith's example, there's a pin factory. And you know, Ghazali <laughs> is saying that 25 things needed to make that pin, you know, and Adam Smith, like, 17, you know. So it's the yeah. same example. That's how I wrote essays back yeah, in the university. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Just change yeah. some of the exactly. critical details. Exactly, <laughs> on there, and two's division of labor, and two scene stuff, you know, function of money. It's, it's amazing what the Muslim scholars wrote. Mm. Um, you know, when I was doing my grad studies in economics, I, I had two of the top professors in the history of economic thought who, who were teaching this, this course, sort of economic history type course. Mm -hmm. And I had one of my colleagues he was a Muslim brother from Ethiopia who was doing his PhD there and um, and he gave a, a paper and he presented on Ibn Khaldun Muqaddama one of the greatest intellectual books ever written by any Muslim or some scholars say Muslim or non-Muslim right at that <laughs> at that time and 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 he had many interesting discussions re regarding you know e economic policy and many interesting discussions uh, regarding human behavior and that in the economic sphere and uh, and so my my colleague just did a paper on that and one of the professors was very upset listening to this lecture and so i thought he was going to say impossible there's no way muslims you know you know that long ago could have known all this stuff really? and i could see him getting upset during this uh during this lecture and then finally at the end the professor was very upset and he said i I'm so disgusted. <laughs> so, and I was just waiting. Why? Then he looked at the other professor. He goes, "Aren't we, you know, two of the leading, you know, professors in this field?" And, and she said, "Yes, so we are." And he goes, "How come we haven't heard of Ibn Khaldun?" Mm. Oh, he was disgusted himself. Yeah. He goes, "How come we are not taught this?" Oh wow. This is shameful. He goes, "How come we are not taught this?" They're only taught, you know, Western named exactly. uh, people. Who, yeah. So and their you, thoughts, not anybody from the Eastern cultures. Yeah. Exactly. So if you look at, for example, some of the great textbooks, you know, Schumpeter we were taught, Joseph Schumpeter from the history of economic thought, you know, he basically looks at a little bit of Greek philosophy mm. and, and some economic discussions, and then there's this great gap, you know, until <laughs> until the 1400s and Mercantilis, etc. And I think there's nothing, like, yeah. you know, I did nothing. Yeah, yeah. Right. right, exactly. This, this we just went gap. to sleep for a few yeah, hundred years. Yeah. This is this great gap, you know. Meanwhile, you know, Islamic economies are thriving, incredible amount of thought and sharia and, and human behavior related to financial transactions, etc. were being built up. And then our thoughts were all burnt after, you know... Yeah, burnt, thrown in the river, you know, a few things happened. That, that you was know, the reason it was dark age. Exactly. Not, you know. actually happened. Lots of stuff happened. <laughs> yeah, that's right. People just decided to throw that in the river and, yeah, and, and that's, disregard it. Yeah, and, and that's... So, so it was a, a vibrant, you know, intellectual, you know, climate there where you produce thinkers like Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Taymiyyah, Zali, all of them had, had very interesting mm. discussions to see etc. On, on human behavior related to economic transactions. Yeah. Of course, a very interesting body of law that was written that governed you mm. know, Muslim tra financial transactions. And, and there's a new book come out that's coming out, that I think it's just come out, uh, the German scholar on the history of capitalism. And, and, he, and his theory is that the Prophet Islam was the first capitalist. <laughs> you know, that capitalism started with Islam. You know, the mm. modern capitalist system as we have, free markets, etc., Started Islam. Really? Yeah. This is a non Muslim writer? Yeah, a German writer. Because if, if you look at Adam Smith, the Invisible Hand, you know, there's a Hadith of process when they're asking him on prices, right? To keep the prices, you know, for some goods, you know, and, and process themselves, well, tell us it's prices, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, and so, so there's an indication of, you know, free market and not, you know, you know, monopolistic pricing, etc. I'm going to use that on my clients. Yeah, there we go. I don't set these prices. You don't like them? <laughs> That's right. I'll set these prices. Don't set these prices. That's right. Exactly. Who are you? That's right. This is the market. It's, you know, that's, that's what I say to my clients. They're complaining about the fees. This is the market. I can't do anything. Right? So, so, but, you know, it's, it's these things, you know. 
trade, uh, risk sharing, profit sharing, you know, competition, uh, etc. And also cooperation. I mean, this was the difference. I mean, we had a different view of wealth. It wasn't survival of the fittest. Mm. I mean, it, it was, but you still had zakah, you had sadaqah, you had taking care of, of, of the needs. I mean, mm. that's why when Omar Abdul Aziz was a khalifa, he couldn't give away the zakah. He could not mm. give away the zakah. Even Muadh ibn Jabal, when he, when, when he was ruling Yemen, I mean, one year he, he brought all the zakah back to Medina. Mm. No one said, you know, okay. you have to distribute this. You can't find someone who needs the wealth, someone to get married who needs this. Anyone, none of the categories was zakah. Oh. He could fulfill, and he gave that all to the Medina, hmm. and, and that. So, oh. have you ever seen this in any modern Western society, hmm. where you can't find anyone poor? Yeah, yeah. nowhere. Mm -hmm. and, That's fascinating. You know, and, and so this is our tradition. Hmm. This is our tradition. So when you eliminate oppressive sort of structures, that's what happens. There's my doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Rehan, so this has been a really fascinating discussion. <laughs> I would be remiss if we didn't speak a little bit about Islamic finance, given that I've got one of the leading Islamic finance experts sitting in front of me. Um, and what I want to ask you is that I think this is all very interesting. When people hear the stories about the Islamic philosophers and the writers and the scholars who wrote about economics and finance and trade, it's eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people, right? But it begs the question, you know, what about here and now? Like, where is the Islamic finance industry here and now? Where are these principles? You know, why don't I see it on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, why can't I get, you know, Islamic finance, um, financial products readily, easily available? And I want to ask you just, you know, given where we are at today, what does the future of the industry look like? What do we have to look forward to? That's an excellent question. Um, we, at a theoretical level, have a great model. We have an interesting history. Um, but the question is, what about today? You know, and if you look at some of the Muslim countries, some are actually very wealthy, thriving; others are very poor. Uh, others have issues of economic, you know, justice, and there's political issues, etc. And that so, so there's a lot of challenges. The way I look at the industry, I think it's in its infancy. You know, I, I think there's a, a, a lot of work that needs to get done. You know, to create proper financial institutions. Um, I think there's governance issues, um, corruption issues. <laughs> in many of our financial institutions and, and, and Muslim countries as a whole. And so so you have to have all those in place if you truly have a, you know, an Islamic you know, financial system and that. I mean, at at the micro level, there are some very good Islamic banks or financial funds. Um, there are some good cooperatives, etc. But as a system, I, I think it, it needs time to develop. And if you, even if you look at the Western system, I mean, it took many years many crashes, booms, and busts, many regulation, re-regulation, and etc. Deregulation, deregulation. Exactly, to, to do all that. And, and still, they still haven't figured it out. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at the recent crisis. I mean, we were at the brink of collapse, old global collapse. Yeah. And many think it may just come around soon, and we're just pushing the problem. I mean, when Mark Carney, who was governor of Bank of Canada, now he's the governor of Bank of England, I mean, I mean, he compared the world's financial system as a house of cards, right at collapse. Wow. And he spent his last few months here, I think, in Canada. He was giving lectures on morality and ethics and banking, and so, yeah. mm. because I mean, we're 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 missing that, right? Mm. So uh, unless sort of we, we sort of have a rethinking, you know, of our relationship, you know, with money, debt, you know, the purpose of life, our relationship with other human beings, you know, if it's going to be exploitative, it's going to be oppressive, it's going to be competition, you know, if you look at. Um, Jeffrey Sachs, um, you know, who is one of the world's leading economists, and you know, he's been looking at the issue of, of the poor countries and how do we get out of it, and you know, and he's just been trying to encourage wealthy nations just to give, I think, like one percent of GDP, just one mm. percent to the poor, and we'll solve hunger. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. yet they're not willing to do that. But if you look at our zakat system, you know, two and a half percent of net wealth, you know, if, if the world followed that. Mm. You won't have these distribution problems. Right. You won't have anyone going hungry. Mm. And so, 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 so his issue was with the major industrialized countries who are not willing to give enough, you know, to, to help the others. Right. You know, and so, so I think we have many challenges facing us, and you know, and this is where Muslim countries and Muslims in general should be forcing, you know, our our, our, our leaders and thinkers and. Ministers, etc. You know, to start 
especially those in the, in the wealthier countries, you know, to, to, to start looking at these these issues and taking leadership, you know, because humanity needs it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's that's a challenge we have. So from, from what you're saying here and from what uh, the author in this book, uh, 5,000 Years of Debt, um, it sounds like Muslims shouldn't just be trying to create an Islamic financial system so that it serves us. But we should be looking to create an Islamic financial system because it is the most fair that has ever existed. And if we do it right, it could supersede and surpass what we currently accept as conventional finance in the West. Yes, I mean, you know the Hadith Prophet talks about that boat, you know, and, and, and these people who are at the bottom of the boat who want to get water, but they say, you know, instead of going up to the top and getting the water coming all the way back down, why don't we just... You know, have a hole, create a hole mm -hmm. at the bottom, and then suddenly, of course, you know, the whole boat sinks, and they yeah. take everyone down, right? You know, you know, and so these foolish people, you know, will, will sink everyone. And and I'm just saying is that unless the Muslims sort of step up, unless we stop those who have very narrow self-interest, um, and it's not just just Muslims, everybody, right? He's, you know, the Occupy Wall Street was we are the 99, percent right? You know, it's it's everyone. Right. If you look at the concentration of wealth, I mean. Recently, you know, the ex-president Jimmy Carter has come out there and says, listen, America is just oligarchy with a handful of people. Controlling all the wealth. Controlling everything. Yeah. And the political power. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I just heard recently that 400 families make 50% of the U.S. political donations. Mm. 400 families. Imagine wow. 320 whatever million people there and that number of people. Mm. Controlling half the conversation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that. So if you have the world powers like that, you know, controlling with a small group, controlling that much wealth. I mean, it sort of skews justice. Mm. And certainly in an economic sense, distributive justice. Yeah. And that, and, and things aren't getting better. Mm. I mean, if you look at the last several decades, I mean, the average person is doing worse. <laughs> Poor definitely doing worse, whereas the top group skewed. Yeah. You know? and, and so, so it's, it's a call for economic justice. And I think it's a call that I think Muslims would be part of, but I think they could certainly lead. I mean, they certainly have within our Sharia and our laws and our principles enough tools to help humanity out of the crisis that's in. Right. This is actually very, very uplifting, the conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I really like what you said. I, I listened to your talk at the Tefler School before mm -hmm. this, and, and I really like what you said there where, you know, you said Islamic finance, these principles that underlie our financial system, they're nothing new. They're they're over fourteen hundred years old, yeah. right? The context is new. The circumstances are new. The application is new. But the principles have been there. It's just up to us now to put them to work. Exactly. In fact, uh, a few years ago, the Vatican had a communique that said the Islamic finance principles. There are principles. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, these are principles that have been shared by religious traditions. You know, these are principles of justice. I mean, these are principles that I think most of humanity can agree with. Mm. You know, but how do we implement it? Who's going to take the lead, etc.? I mean, that remains to be seen. And this is an area I think Muslims can definitely contribute because I think, you know, everyone is sort of realizing there's something wrong here. Yeah. You know, there's something wrong, you know. And when you had that collapse in the U.S. upright, and then the bulk of it was ended up being on the, the burden of the masses. Mm. I mean, and, and the banks, you know, basically got away scot free. Bailed out, no yeah. prison sentences, yeah, exactly. no criminal injunctions, no criminal exactly. uh, prosecutions, and, 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 unlike and, the savings and loan crisis back in the 80s. Exactly. And meanwhile, you're getting people being thrown in jail. Debtors, yeah. For, for debtors, mm -hmm. you, know? you know, you're getting, I mean, I, I in the book, I think they were talking about a guy who was in, in jail indefinitely for $300 debt he had to a lumberyard. A lumberyard, you know, exactly. until he scraped together 300 yeah, bucks, exactly. the judge said. Indefinite detention yeah. until you can scrape together three hundred dollars. Yeah, and so this is the type of stuff that's happening to the poor people. You Meanwhile, know? the big bankers not a single criminal charge, yeah. even in cases of outright fraud. I mean, Countrywide yeah. collapsed as a mortgage origination company because of outright, straight up lying on applications mm. about who they were talking to mm. and whether mortgages existed, whether even houses existed, like mm. the worst kind of fraud possible. Mm. No criminal charge. Exactly, and so. So I think this is where we really need a rethinking of our values, right? And, and that. So, and I and I think it's people from all across various faiths, walks of life, etc., that need to get together and say, you know, how do we 
reform our, our, our systems. Right. So if we do this, then if, if Muslims do understand that we have a role to play in the, on the world economic stage mm -hmm. to become world economic leaders, because we have a system that is more fair, more sustainable, more just, mm -hmm. we can do not only good for ourselves, because as Muslims we, we're starving mm -hmm. for compliant uh, financial product, but we can also do good for the rest of the world, too. What next? I mean, how, how do we do this? I, I think it it starts with small steps, you okay. know, with you know some 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 good financial firms. Uh, it, it it really starts with some of the countries, Muslim countries that can be examples for others, um, Muslim governments and countries. And I, I think we need a lot of reform there within ourselves as well. A lot of the injustice and, and corruption that's there. Mm. Uh, so it, it it's a it's a struggle, you know. And I think that hopefully the new generation who realizes who, who I think will we'll get a deep who will get a deeper understanding of Sharia hopefully over time and realize that you know world's financial system the ecological system you know the environment everything around us yeah we don't talk you know, about that our, very much you know yeah. the, the food system etc right yeah, we don't you talk know, about that much either we don't talk you know Asfantel tells us to eat you know food that's halal and tayyibah right you know, tayyibah. maybe it's halal right is tayyibah any of the stuff we're eating I don't know I go to the grocery it's no, terrible right? I've been to the farm just exactly. not nothing tayyib about it I grew up on a farm yeah exactly you know and so the, the whole system right you, you know uh, that, that that we see, you know, it needs reform in mm -hmm. various aspects, right? You know, and, and that, and I, and I think it's Muslims as well as other groups, environmental groups, um, you know, peaceful groups, etc. You know, that that are interested in world peace. You know, mm -hmm. seeing all the wars and everything we're seeing now to 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 get together, and certainly I think alliances with other religious groups and other value-based groups yeah. is is important for us. And we're, we're 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 part of this together, but we certainly should take leadership. I mean, yeah. we've got the guidance. I mean, we have a history and a tradition yeah. that has us in it, and, and we just need to revive it. So are we waiting for ulama to come up with that aligns with modern instruments? Are we waiting for governments to become less corrupt? Are we waiting for Muslims to just start institutions in their neighborhoods and, and, and countries and other Muslims backing those institutions? That sounds like part two. <laughs> That's a whole, like, yeah, well, go ahead, I'll let you finish. In terms of solutions, I mean, we have to ask all sorts of questions. That's a good question, I think. And as an individual, you have to see how you can contribute, right? right. Mm -hmm. you, you know, what area you know well. Mm. You know, there, there's so many areas, whether in health, you know, environment, finance, you know, you know, you, you name it, spirituality, right? Yeah. You know, etc. There, there's there's so much we can contribute to yeah. the problem. So, you know, it was sent as a rahmah, you know, to, 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 to humanity, to alameen, right? Yeah. So so this rahmah, you know, when you know when we're living in a world where we're faced with so much uh, issues and problems and the Sharia has, you know, a, a solution and a way, you know, for us. Yeah. I mean the good news is these conversations are happening, right? And if yes. you look at where the the industry has come in the last you know 30 40 years yeah. tremendous progress right oh, yeah. and so hopefully that that's a sign of things to come i'm certainly confident with people like rehan at the helm <laughs> that makes me that makes me feel good about the future yeah, yes. it doesn't make me feel good about the yeah, future yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 we got to do all the work right but jazakallah khair rehan yes. really appreciate you coming on the show we could do this all day this but is, i want to be conscious of your time this is just this, the scratching of the surface of yeah. what I, I believe rehan could contribute so Hopefully we can repeat this at some point in the future. Oh, he'll be back. He'll be, I, we, we actually had two parts planned today, but we took up all your time on, on the one. Time, so. Yeah. Okay. So we'll do the other one another time. But thank you so much for joining us, and um, we'll hope to see you again here on the show again soon. Inshallah. 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 Inshallah.